Well, as they head out, I have the privilege this morning of introducing a, a friend of mine really to you. And to set a little context for that, a couple years ago, there was a group of about six uh, people at Bethany Church that um, started this thing called Divine Project. It wasn't something we talked about a ton because it's not a program we're going to overlay on the church. It's not some curriculum we found that we're like, oh, Beth, this is the key for Bethany Church. Not at all. What it was was a team that just took a, uh, some time to look through the Bible and what, see what the New Testament said about um, discipleship. You see on the front of your worship folder today, the disciple-making church. And what does it mean for a culture of a church to form disciples and for everybody to have a part in that? And, and the, all those parts and pieces could be something as simple as a prayer with somebody in the gathering place, uh, a, 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 you know, a time over coffee discussing the message, growth groups, all the way up to preaching on the Sunday morning. All kinds of little touch points where the gospel can be shared. And part of that process was working with um, somebody um, from Center for Ministry Development, it's called. It's a group out of Australia, actually. And there was a man named Craig Glassick, who we were, I've been working with over the last oh, couple years now, and in a coaching kind of relationship, where he's been mentoring, coaching me, and as we think about our church culture and life. And he's been in the United States the past few weeks and been at our church this weekend. Maybe you saw some guy this morning, like, who's that guy? That might have been, might have been Craig. He's here this morning, and I want to take a few minutes in the service before we have a little shorter uh, sermon today. Uh, I want to take a few minutes in the service just to talk discipleship with him and ask some questions of him. Uh, He comes from Sydney, Australia. So let's welcome Craig Glasek to the stage. He comes up to chat with me for a little bit. Hey, Craig. Come on up. Thanks, Grab a seat. Yeah, good to see you. Good to it was see you. fun for Craig and I because we have been chatting by Zoom for two years before we met um, this weekend, actually. So it's kind of like meeting a friend uh, that I'd a never... Vi- a virtual yeah, friend. A virtual yeah. friend. Yeah. yeah, a virtual friend <laughs> that we finally got to meet and um, shake hands and give him a hug. And I'm so blessed and grateful for him. He's pushed through this weekend. It's, he's at the end of three weeks in the States, three and a half. And his flight, your flight here got delayed by... A lot. A lot. <laughs> Instead of getting here at 6, he got here like way after 11, so we got him and finally got to bed. He's staying at the Wibbles house, and he's been a trooper this weekend pushing through, even though I know he's jet lagged. So why don't you just take a minute, introduce yourself a little yeah. bit to the congregation, tell them just a little about yourself. Sure. Well, the first thing I want to say is it's I, I, feelings mutual. It's great to be here. Uh, I've got to know Jeff over the last few years. It's just been a blessing. It's such a joy being in another country, having fellowship across the other side of the world. And then being able to meet him and meet people he's talked about and see the church. And so it's a delight for me to be here. I'm so just so grateful to, yeah. God to be able to be here. Yeah, so I, I'm married uh, for 23 years. I have to get that right, don't I? And <laughs> I've got two boys. Uh, they're 18 months apart, 12 and turning 11 the day after I get back. So my youngest son, Joshua, I had to promise him that I'd get back yeah. in time for his birthday and his birthday party on the weekend. Uh, and so I work in, in ministry development and coaching and consulting And I've been doing that for the last uh, decade, trying to help churches, pastors and churches to grow kind of a deep-rooted culture of disciple-making. And so we're kind of closely aligned with a publisher called Matthias Media over here. Um, I'm sure there's been books here in the the foyer before. Uh, And so I've had a lot of work in America. I've been here sort of seven or eight times in the last, outside of COVID, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, usually spending three, four, five weeks going around the country working with different churches for, for a few days. Yeah, and you're in Ohio and then Texas and then here, right? North Carolina. North Carolina. Iowa, yep. We've come now to the best part of the country, know, God's saved, country. Saved, so saved, you're ending your trip, we saved the best for last. So for welcome last. to the Northwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, fun fact about uh, Craig, he was a professional cricket player for some years, so I won't make you go into that too much. But uh, <laughs> Do people know what cricket is? I don't know. Yep. 
But the Sticks best, the and best, balls. Yeah, and yeah. The best description I ever heard was uh, it's quite a slow game. And Robin Williams had been to Australia and he came back on an American talk show and they said to him, he said, so I've been watching this game called Cricket, weird game. And the talk show host said, tell us more. And he said, the best way I can describe it is baseball on Valium. Yeah. <laughs> Slow. Slow. Takes Chilled a, out. It takes a long time to play it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so you've been working with churches for a long time and hundreds of churches yeah. uh, talking about discipleship. And we all know that you know, we're called to make disciples. Those are Jesus' final words, you know, make disciples. And as you were saying in one of our meetings last yeah. night, final words are important. And Jesus' final words were go and make disciples. So help us kind of, and you know, we've been doing this here a little bit, but how would you kind of define a disciple? Mm. Well, the New Testament, uh, doesn't matter how I define it. Actually. Right. <laughs> right. The New Testament defines it as a learner, student, pupil, apprentice, apprentice to the master to become like the master. So if you're an apprentice carpenter, you watch and study the, the one who's leading you, who's modeling and demonstrating. You learn to be like the one you're learning, if that makes sense. And so yeah. uh, the New Testament talks about it in terms of learner, student, pupil, uh, ongoing learning. So when Jesus says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all people, he's saying go therefore and make learners, apprentices. It's not just a call to go out and reach the lost as critical and important as that is, and we all need a shake-up with that. Yeah, He's saying, as we go, to make disciples of all people, to so make learners of all people, no matter where you are, maybe on a continuum. Yeah. yeah, so a continuum being from far away from Christ or not knowing him, all the way to a time of conversion, to like, that goes on then, that growth forever, right? Until we eternity, never, I guess. We never stop learning Christ. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So one of the things we've been talking about um, in some of our meetings this weekend, as he's met with me and some others, is <laughs> this idea of how disciples are made. And that's a huge question, obviously, and we can't unpack it entirely. But we've been talking about, I think, uh, four different Ps mentioning the letter P. And we've actually, a while back, uh, talked about this in a sermon. But can you maybe talk about how disciples are made? Mm, mm. Well, again, we've got to look at the New Testament for our guide on how, how, how to do things and how, how disciples are made. And so it lays out very clearly, consistently, all the way through, four ways. Um, you, you can argue on a few of these things, but basically four ways that disciples are made. First, it's the proclamation of God's Word. God's Word is living and active. You know the verse, sharper than any double-edged sword. Right. Penetrating to dividing soul and spirit. It is powerful. God's Word is powerful. And He uses His Word to do the work to transform us. So the proclamation of the Word, in many ways, it's not just... Preaching, as Jeff was saying before, uh, it's not just in the foyer, though that's important. It's not just, it's everywhere. It's around by the children's bedside, over the table, in the coffee shop. We make disciples, we proclaim the truth to one another everywhere. Right. And it's just as powerful in your living room or in the coffee shop as it is up here. That's such an important point because... I, I, you know, sometimes I'll say to our church, like, it's the word doing the work. Like, yeah. I think it was Martin Luther who said, like, he had this whole long ministry, and he said, I did nothing, actually. Yes. You know, he changed the world, right? Yeah. It revolutionized the Reformation, and he said, the word did it. Yeah. I did nothing. The word did the work. That's and right. And you have the same word as I have, and you have the same word in Australia as we have. Absolutely. The word does the work when we proclaim it. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. that's great. And there's many ways to proclaim. You can send a note, you can send a card, you can send a link to a sermon, you can speak it yourself, you can read the Bible with someone, you can hear the gospel proclaimed from the book. There's so many different Give ways. a book to somebody. Pro proclamation. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to get that book. Good. Um, joy Switch. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's know great. about it. Yeah. Yep. We can yep. chat I about it. I more joyful. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, proclamation. So yep. Okay. Prayerful dependence on the Spirit. Okay. That's the second. We call it the four Ps. So prayer. 
prayer is the other way, that God, uh, God works as part of his means of making disciples. So I shared a story last night about my uh, cousin who prayed for me every day for 10 years. I went to church with her when I was 14. I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian family. And at 24, various circumstances led me to investigating the truth of the Lord Jesus. And I repented and turned to him. And I gave my testimony at a church gathering, not unlike this one. And she, I invited her and she was there. I said, were you surprised that I became a Christian? She said, no, not at all. I said, how are you not surprised? You knew me. How are you not surprised that I am now a Christian? She said, I prayed for you every day for 10 years by name. That's prayerful dependence on the Spirit. Um, and so the Spirit is powerful. The Word is powerful. We all have the Word and the Spirit. It doesn't matter where we are in the world. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think I want our culture to foster, and we've done it a little bit in our growth groups, praying for people by name, and we've talked about this this weekend, mm. is like the power of praying by name, even if it was two people in your life. If there was two people you know, it could be a family member, it could be a coworker, it could be a friend of yours, it could be a long-lost friend you've lost touch with even. But praying by name that the Lord would use you if you're still in contact with them or, mm. or something in your life uh, to, to, to see them come to the Lord. I mean, I'm, I am convinced that conversion, prayer, uh, reformation, revival only happens on the back of prayer. Of Absolutely. Saints. Yeah. Prayer is the foundation. Yeah. 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 So, be okay. Like, proclamation, like, prayer. Like, Go ahead. Yeah. Be like the persistent widow. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. So proclamation, prayer. God uses his people as, part, as his agents. He uses us. It is our great joy and privilege to be involved in the Great Commission. Every one of you. God mm. wants to use every one of you. He's given you particular gifts. We don't have to all do it exactly the same way. But proclamation, prayerfulness, and God uses his people, persevering over time. Mm-hmm. That's what we call it, the four Ps, proclamation, prayer, God's people, persevering over time. Perseverance is such an important uh, attribute. Yeah. Disciples are made over time. Learners are made over time. Just you being here today, persevering and being here regularly, is a great encouragement to each other as we see each other, as we gather. But persevering through suffering, through struggle um, over the course of life. Mm. Yeah. I think that one's so important for our church because I think about our makeup and we, we have a large um, population of older saints. And sometimes I think as you, uh, as I've talked to some of you, there's a sense like, what can I do? You know, I'm older now. I can't serve the way I used to. But as you said, like just your presence here alone, who has persevered the most? The most, the oldest Christian in the room, right? <laughs> so if you're the oldest Christian in the room, you've got something to offer because you've persevered the longest in the faith. And so those parents coming along behind you with kids or our youth sitting over here get to look around and go, wow, they're, they're like old. I'm 15. They're old. Like they still believe this stuff and they're 80. Like that's, a, that's powerful, isn't it, girls? That is powerful. Uh, and so I think that perseverance piece is really absolutely. important. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, I like those four Ps. They're easier to remember. Okay. So we're talking about discipleship though. And yet I think a lot of churches wrestle with and have maybe lost and they're like trying to figure out like... Why have we sort of lost the central place of discipleship in the church? And, or maybe not just that, but even that, that every person sees their part in that. Mm. What, any thoughts on why you think we've lost that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complex question. A multi, uh, it is, multifaceted yeah. response would, would need, need to really flesh it out. But, uh, yeah, I think that there's been, particularly in North America, an over-reliance on, on programmatic ministry, mm-hmm. on having lots and lots of programs as though, we call it a trellis, like a, a vine sits on a trellis as though the vine will grow, people will grow just by putting on the program mm. and investing lots of time in the program. But it's the word of God and the power of the spirit that transforms people. 
there's nothing wrong with programs or, or, or trellis or structures. Some trellis, yeah. Small group, DNA is a structure or a trellis, but it helps facilitate word and prayer ministry. Mm. And so an over-reliance on that, also an over-reliance on preaching. Mm-hmm. Preaching is important and helpful and so valuable to have someone who's trained and spends time to unpack the word for us to help us understand it more clearly and deeply. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the be-all and end-all. Right. It's part of, part of growing, it's part of discipleship. So an over-reliance on the pastor, um, over-reliance on programs and structures, they're kind of two things that, uh, and just a loss of a vision that, that everybody is involved. We're all involved in some way. Yeah. And different people will do it with different gifting in different ways to different extents. The seasons of your life will dictate that to some extent. Yeah. Whether you're retired or you've got five kids and homeschooling and th- there's different seasons, but um, it's about helping people take next tiny steps one step at a time right yeah. and it can even be tiny steps it doesn't mean every relationship's going to have every opportunity to be a, a presentation of the gospel right i mean in fact that would probably be a disservice in some relationships absolutely but it's yeah. persevering not only together but persevering in those relationships with people you want to know christ it's persevering there too i would say i'll just say one thing on that so often we hear uh preachers say we're going to go out and proclaim the gospel because people need to hear the truth and they do but that's also a person and so we, we want to engage people in relationship and love them and care for them. And God says, pray, pray for that person. Pray that you might have an opportunity at the right time to proclaim the truth. We need to be bold. Well, it's important we don't lack courage. But that opportunity may come in the first five minutes or it may come 20 years later. Loving your neighbor, caring for their pet, caring for them in a crisis, enjoying them, having fun with them. Mm-hmm. You being consistent. We don't know God's timing. Right. But we need to be prayerful and persevering in, in, in praying for the opportunity. So please, when someone says proclaim the gospel, don't lack boldness. There's a pla- time and a place, and we need to, but we need to be prayerful and know that God will do it in his time. Yeah, and yeah. wise. Yeah. We had somebody share in our growth group a couple weeks ago, a family who shared how a similar thing. They had neighbors that lived next to them for years, and then they moved away. The neighbors did, and they became, the family became Christians, the family that's in our church now. And they found out after they became Christians, yeah, the, they got reconnected with the family. They said, we, we prayed for you for years. Mm. We were your neighbors. We were praying for you. You didn't even know. Mm. Uh, and, and that's just beautiful. It's a mm. beautiful story that God can work even in our absence yep. through our prayers. Absolutely. Yep. So we're talking discipleship then. And this Sunday morning is a critical piece. And while the sermon, like you said, I totally agree, not the be all end all. And yet there's something about Sunday that you know, is. You know, everyone's got to get up and leave when you preach now, don't you? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or open their phones or yeah, something. Right, or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, football scores, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but Sunday is critical. It, it, we're all here. We're together. We've set aside this couple hours in our week to be here. How, any thoughts on how we can reclaim sort of Sunday interactions before, during, and maybe after church to um, foster more discipleship? Yeah. Uh, when you come to church on Sunday, God wants two things. He wants you to take a tiny step forward. He wants you to keep growing, to persevere and to keep growing. As the word, as you apply the word, hear the word, and apply it to your life prayerfully. Mm-hmm. So he wants you to come with an expectancy that you will grow. Could you read the passage before you came? You know, you know the passage that's going to be preached on, I assume. Could you read that and come with one question? What's one thing I'd want to, I want to hear from this sermon? I want to understand from this sermon. And if it doesn't get answered, you can talk to Jeff or talk with someone else. So come with an expectancy of learning, and then helping somebody else learn. Mm. Come to see some, help somebody else grow, show love, kindness, speak the word of God to one another, pray with one another, and come with that expectation. What would it be like if there was a whole church who gathered together, not in false piety, 
not like the Pharisees standing on the street corners, but just quietly talking to one another about what we've just heard and then praying quietly with one another, encouraging one another to keep going forward, to keep spurring on. I'm kind of reminded of a workshop I ran once where a lady from the underground church in China was in it. And I was trying to train, training these kind of uh, young people in ministry in, in how to do this sort of thing and how to speak about God as we gather together over coffee and, and um, move beyond just talking about sports and the weather and football and family. Those, those things are important and we want to be interested in them. And she came up to me at the end and said, I don't understand why, you, why you're training us in this. I said, what do you mean? She said, we... We have to go through three secret knocks. We move location every week. Hmm. We know what we're going out to in the week ahead. And so we're desperate to talk about God with one another for the hour that we've got before we have to escape. Hmm. T- just a desperation for God's word and for mutual strengthening so they can go out and survive the world in the next week. Hmm. Different context, but it's a, the urgency is a challenge to us all, I think, in yeah. the comfort of the West. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Share that story about, um, we talked about it last night, the lady who uh, decided to change seats in the church. We, 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 we did a curriculum a while back in our growth group. It's called Six Steps to Loving Your Church, if you remember that. And one of the challenges was to sit in a new seat. And some of you did that, I remember, and now you're all back in your old seats. I'm just kidding. Yeah. But we tried that, but I, I thought that was a great little anecdote. Will you share that story as I we will, kind of wrap? As long as you can promise me that you haven't given anyone rotten fruit, they're not going to try yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, we're, we're all good. We're all good, Craig. So there's a lady, I was working with a church uh, just outside of D.C., Washington, D.C., and the pastor had taken a call uh, three years earlier at his mother-in-law's church. Now, his mother-in-law, that had been her one church, Betty, her whole life. She was 93 years old, and the pastor would get up and he'd look down and see Betty sitting in that seat, and he knew she'd be sitting in that seat because she was, had been sitting there for 93 years. <laughs> That was the family pew. There was generations that had sat in there. So there's a deep emotional attachment to that. And she had sat in the same seat. And he got, got up there one Sunday morning, having just done Six Steps to Loving Your Church, and challenged people just to go home and pray about how God might use the simple act of where you sit to strengthen and encourage somebody else. Okay, by, by ministering to them, by talking to them, listening to them, having a conversation with them. She went home after that session and she cried her eyes out and repented and said, God, I'm so sorry that just the simple act of where I could sit, I've never thought about how that could be used. And she came the next week, and the pastor gets up, and he looks down, and Betty's not there, and he thinks she's dead. (laughs) Because she was always in that seat. But what Betty had done is prayed, and stood up the back, and just waited to see who, who was where. And a young mother, single mother with two children, came in, and she sat with her. And she got to know this young mother, and she introduced her to some other people across the generations and then she started doing it with other people started praying and asking Mm. God just to guide her she didn't get it right every time but just to guide her about where she may sit and then she started getting all the other 80 plus year olds in the church to do the same Uh, and so sooner or later you've got a whole church of people standing up the back and no one sitting down (laughs) that's a problem you'll have to address on your own yeah Uh, but you get the idea and so there was this transformation in the church just the simple act of thinking God how could you use me Mm. in this tiny way yeah just to show someone comfort or love or care and concern. And that's something that all of us can do. Mm-hmm. We can all pray before we come mm-hmm. about how God may use us in our weakness and feebleness. We may feel inadequate, but God can use us. I and mean, it blows the categories off discipleship. Because, it, I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to always be, it can be, a Bible study over coffee or here at growth group or DNA group, but it also is the tiny little things. If we can think of it that way, 
That's something everybody can do. That's right. Thousands and thousands of tiny little steps. We know that the Christian life, anyone who's lived it for five minutes, hmm. knows that the, sin rest, uh, the flesh wrestles with the spirit and it's two steps forward, one step back and sometimes more. James talks about that. But we want to see people just keep taking tiny steps forward. So as we gather together, it's not an earth-shattering transformation that might take place this Sunday or next Sunday, but it's seeing people move step by step towards right. maturity. God doesn't want us to live Groundhog Day in the Christian life. He wants us to be learners of Christ and transformed more and more to grow in Christ's likeness. And we are to help one another do that tiny step by step. Right. It's like just applying the slightest bit of pressure to the small of the back, I, I describe it as. Mm. God will give the growth, but he uses us and it's our great joy and privilege to be involved. Mm. Well, thank you, uh, Craig, just for taking a few minutes out of this, this busy weekend for you and sharing with us. And, and yeah, I appreciate Pleasure. just hearing your voice and talking with you and hopefully that's encouraging to you guys. You got to get off the stage, I'm going to preach now. <laughs> Can okay. we thank Craig right, for being thanks. here today? Thanks, Craig. I wanted you to meet Craig, and he's here more for just working with leadership and some of our elders and um, staff, but I just thought it'd be great to hear his voice for a few minutes in service and uh, hear him speak of discipleship. Hopefully you recognize that that's something we've been talking a little bit more about here at Bethany Church, and you know, this isn't the end of that. This is a process of building and growing a culture of disciple-making. So this morning, we're going to use our imaginations just for a few more minutes and kind of revisit some thoughts we did in a series a while back, a couple of years called The Discipleship Making Church, by going over a few biblical ideas about why we make disciples. As I said earlier, about two years ago, a team of six individuals began this, this Vine Project ministry asking uh, why we make disciples and what are they and who does this and why do we do it? And as I said, it's not a curriculum we went going through where we're going to overlay from some mega church onto Bethany Church, not at all. It was just a process of looking at uh, our culture in light of what the New Testament says. I love that Craig said multiple times, like, well, it doesn't really matter what I think. <laughs> That's true. It matters what Christ says about the church and discipleship. In the first phase of this project, our team worked through these five core convictions. Take a look at this slide, answer these questions. Why make disciples? What is a disciple? How are disciples made? Who makes disciples? And where do we do this thing? Where does it take place? As you hear, see those questions, if, if somebody was to ask you do, you, do you know the answer to those? Could you give maybe like even a, a one sentence or two? Just think about that. We actually produced something called a discipleship manifesto or constitution, whatever you want to call it, with some answers to these questions. We put a copy in your worship folder this week. Yeah, that's one of the documents and things that came out of that Vine Project team. And actually, if, you, if your small group meets this Thanksgiving week, some of you won't because Thursday and uh, get Thanksgiving tonight. But if you do meet this week, you're going to use that just for your uh, time of discussion together. So real brief this morning, I wanted to go over this first question. Why make disciples? Why do we do it? If you've been at church any amount of time or even just this morning, <laughs> you heard Craig and I say, uh, we make disciples because Jesus said, go and make disciples. He gave it to us, the great commission, but why? Okay, okay, he said do it, but that doesn't always work just to say, like, somebody said do it, so go do it. Do it because I said so, if you grew up hearing that. The why is always important behind it. And it might sound like a simple question, why make disciples? But Jesus gives us more answers than just because I told you so. That's why, because he's loving, that's why. 
He's loving. It gives us more reasons. It's a good reason to obey Jesus, right? We don't want to undersell that. I don't want to downplay that. It's good because he just said it. He's God in flesh, right? But there's more in God's word. And the answer to that question, why we make disciples, and this is a big answer this morning, that I want us to try and imagine and, and even use our imaginations this morning. The big answer is we make disciples because that's God's goal for all of history and humanity is to gather around himself a multitude of people who will spend forever with him. That's the goal of history. That's why he made the earth. That's why we're here, so that he'll gather a people together and bring us back to a garden city that's way better than it ever even was at the original creation. Can, can you imagine that this morning? Can you use your imagination this morning? You know, I honestly think that part of faithful discipleship is using the imagination. And the imagination is actually something we've really served poorly in the evangelical church. We are, we are, we're part of individually as a disciple and collectively as the church. We're part of something that's really big. The grand story of God gathering these people together. And we should imagine that. And spend time imagining that and thinking about that. What could a community look like now that knows and imagines where it's going? A multitude of people spending eternity with Jesus in a perfect garden city. Can you imagine that? This is the answer, the big answer, to why make disciples that gives so much urgency and important to our mission. So this morning with this, we're going to look with this one answer, grand imaginative answer to the question, why make disciples? So if you got an outline, grab it. We're just going to do a few little points this morning. If you got it, get it out. Take, fill in some notes for those who are visual learners or writing learners to, to make some notes. Have your Bibles open as well. We're going to flip around a little bit. We're going to spark our imagination with God's grand cosmic goal, his purpose of all history. And here it is again, so you can get it in a note. We make disciples because this is Jesus' grand goal. This is why he made us, why he put us here, to rescue, transform, and redeem a people and bring them to the throne, his throne, a garden city that we'll all someday live in. This is the big cosmic reason. It's the big story of the Bible. Do you imagine yourself as part of that story? Or, or as a character written into God's story and, 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 and with an important purpose here at Bethany Churches, you're part of that mission. This mission, the grand goal, the grand plan of, of God on earth, where all of history is moving, moving somewhere where he rescues a people and then transforms them as we grow on that continuum of growth and then brings us together in the throne room. I want to look at a passage today. If you've got your Bible, turn to Revelation 7 with me. The back of the Bible there, last book, Revelation chapter 7. Uh, and I want to read a few verses. But as I read it, I want you also to try to imagine it. And maybe for you, even if you uh, close, want to close your eyes, because that will help you imagine it better, uh, feel free to do that. But as I read it, I really want you to imagine and put a picture in your mind of what this might look like. Because this passage lets us in on the secret, the grand plan for all of history. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17. After this, John writes, I looked and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. It's the grand goal. And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. They're yelling it out. And all the angels were standing around the throne. Can you imagine it? And around the elders and the four living creatures. Can you imagine them? And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen. Can you hear him saying, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you, can you imagine it? Can you imagine those words? Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. He'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As we imagine that, God's grand goal for the world, John describes a sea of people from all times and places and nations gathered around the throne of Jesus. And God is there, and we are there, and the Lamb who washed us in his blood is there. And those who are there, that we're celebrating together in abandonment and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is God's plan. And we're there, those who trusted Christ. And we're ruling and reigning with him. And, and Jesus is our Savior and he's at the center of it all. And you're there in that moment in real time and space. What did you see? Did you imagine it? Or maybe you thought, yeah, it's kind of hard for me to do. I believe the promises of God that we place our faith in him and, you know, we become richer as we grow in, in, in knowing him. But to, to imagine the reality of them, it's hard. It could be for you. But these truths are not just concepts and doctrine to be believed, but belief that we put, we put flesh and bones upon in our imaginative mind. That's why throughout the church history, until maybe Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment, the church was always on the cutting edge of creating beautiful art because they used their imaginations to think, what would that be like? What would that look like? What would that sound like? Think Handel's Messiah, you know, that is played at Christmas time. He had imagination. What would that sound like? That throne room. And he creates, created some of the best art. I, I bring that up really to ask, can, can you fathom life that way? And can you imagine life this way? Or do you look at life that way? The future and our current mission, that that's where we're going. That grand gift, that's where we're headed. That grand goal, excuse me, of all history. Of all history. We're headed towards that. And, and there's so many things that, you know, the tyranny of the urgent that kind of gets in the way of that or we get caught up in that. And, you know, we kind of thought life was about economy and and elections, and careers, and money, and kids, and sports, and leisure, and food. And those are all good things. Hear me. Those are all good gifts from God. And some of those gifts we enjoy are a foretaste of what is to come. 
And some of the gifts and pleasures God gives us now can be a tool to help us imagine a good-tasting meal now. Man, what's the Feast of Heaven going to taste like? That's how those things work. And we live in our day-to-day life, and, and we should invest in the here and now, right? And those things matter. But the investing we do is headed towards this one big grand goal. That's why we make disciples. We're living in that context of these good things with that in our imagination. One ultimate purpose and a venue we can't totally imagine. That's why. Let's look at the growth we're to pursue as disciples. Turn to Titus with me. The book of Titus after, oh, was it first, second Timothy? Titus, we're going to go to chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I can't find it. The pastor can't find Titus. <laughs> Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good works. In this passage, Paul is encouraging Titus and the church how to live now, encouraging Titus to, to, to lead this church as that teaches sound doctrine and, and showing them what type of culture they're to be, to see this truthful teaching of the gospel, to train men and women to, to live out this calling to make disciples, older men training younger men and older women training younger women. It's part of that grand plan, which Paul highlights in the passage. And he talks, though, about two appearings of Christ in the passage. Did you catch them? First, the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation to us. That is Jesus Christ to train us, to build us up, to grow us in holiness, to live godly lives now as disciples while we live and wait for the second appearing of Jesus to bring us a new home as he comes back to earth built up in this time to be people who are zealous to do good works, to live for him, to love for him, to build relationships in light of his great commission, to be zealous. That's the why. Because Jesus is coming again. He's come once, Titus says, or uh, Paul writes to Titus in this passage. He brought that grace first time that is brought to us to save us, to redeem us, the message of Christ's salvation. But he's coming again. And so now is our time to make disciples because there will be a day when he does come and then that discipleship-making mission will be over. Disciples will be completed. So now is that time, as Paul writes to Titus. You get a picture here in this book of Titus of a church culture that's totally engrossed in the discipleship-making process. Older men working with younger men. Older women working with younger women and, and vice versa across generations. Can you imagine, in some ways, more for our church in light of that? More for your part in the discipleship-making mission. But to make it really concrete, let's look at two different examples of how uh, that church might sound, or how two churches might sound. The first one's going to be a church where maybe the person attending has got a little more of a consumer mentality. Consumer is a purchaser, a buyer of things, a consumer of goods. You know, God made us consumers. We eat food. 
And yet it's not the best mindset to take into your church life for discipleship making. The second will be the discipleship making church of Titus 2. Here's what a church might look like that lacks kind of discipleship making culture. Or maybe the attitude of a person that's kind of just content with that. I'm happy just to come to church, attend Bible study, volunteer some time and give money. I need support of friends at church. I need spiritual help to get through my life. And notice, these aren't bad things. These are good things. I'll try and invite others to church, hear the gospel, but I probably won't be the one to share Christ with them. I'll be a Christian at work, maybe by telling other people I'm a Christian. And I want to be a godly parent, but I need the church programs to teach my kids. Here's what another culture might sound like, a little more focused on discipleship making. I want to keep growing in Christ-likeness and be jealous for Christ's name. I want to grow in the word and prayer and in daily fellowship with with Christ and, and truly be known by other believers. I want my life priorities to reflect God's grand plan to glorify the Son. I want my children to see the gospel affects every part of my life, every corner of my heart and life. I want to be used by God to build his church. I want to reach those around me with the gospel, even if it means a little more training. I want to learn to speak with others about their Christian lives. I want to encourage other disciples to grow. Do you see the difference? There is a difference. One person, you know, the first one, things weren't bad, but the needs didn't really go much beyond their own personal needs. While this other, the second, is really imagining a much larger picture for the church life and mission, a much larger story of disciple-making and asking that question, how can I be used to make disciples? Even with my introversion, right? Or even with, I'm not sure, I, I don't have the gift to stand up and preach, so, but how can I be used? Asking yourself those questions, what is my place? I mean, even if it's something like starting conversations with the checkout person at Cutsforth and go, consistently going back to that same person to get to know them and, and praying for them um, privately, and they don't even know it, with the intent of maybe getting to a place where you someday say, hey, come to my church's Christmas Eve service. All right, I'd love to. You built that relationship. Or inviting him to Dickens Carolers, which we're having in a, a couple weeks. Or writing an encouraging card. Or, or praying for someone. Or, or sending a book. See, that's what we're trying to blow the categories off discipleship. And let you see that you can do this. It's just helping someone take a little step towards Jesus. Because discipleship is being, it's being formed, not filled. In Titus 2, being trained in the gospel. Transformed by the gospel. That's this point there for us. We're being trained in the gospel and transformed by it. That's our second reason. The gospel's training and transforming us. Let's look at the third one to close today. The third biblical passage I want to read is a short one from Colossians 1. So go ahead and turn there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Kind of the order there in the New Testament. Colossians 1, verse 13 through 20. Here's our third reason. It's this. Jesus has rescued and redeemed that's why we make disciples. This is the biggest piece of it. Uh, it's, it's the biggest part because it's the thing that makes possible God's grand goal to save people. Colossians 1, uh, was it 13, did I say? Yeah, 13. Uh, we'll read 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. So that's what Christ has come to do. To transfer people from one kingdom to another. Do you know as you think about the world, there are only two kingdoms. 
Paul seems to be implying here, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. So every human on earth is in one of those kingdoms. There's no gray, mushy middle. There's the kingdom of darkness, Paul says, or the kingdom of light. And in this passage, Paul tells us Jesus has rescued people by redeeming them. How did he do that? Jesus traveled, right, from a far-off country the dark, to the dark land of earth and began this revolution by dying for us, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and then through faith and repentance that people express, transferring them from one kingdom to another. It's like a major passport. <laughs> it's like a major immigration from one kingdom to another. We are being brought into. People who were slaves to their own desires, slaves to sin, living under a different authority, and transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. As we read the passage, we see that Jesus is the beginning of that. He's the creator of that. He's the middle of that. He's the sustainer, and he's ultimately the one who is the end of that, the reconciler who brought us back to God. Colossians tells us that. It's kind of hard to fathom the work of, this, of his son or the gravity of this transfer. Here's a slide we used a while back to kind of help us just get an idea of like this process of growth. You see on the left would be everybody before knowing Christ and this moment of rescue where Christ died on the cross, but then also a moment of personal rescue when you place your faith in that. But then there's that ongoing line of growth as we continue to take those steps to look more and more like Christ until, until we reach the grand goal. You see a crown there, the throne, of, of, of hev- throne room of heaven, the new heaven and earth. There's a point in history, the cross there, where Jesus redeems a people that are rescued by this, this cross bought, blood-bought reconciliation made between God and humanity. As he dies for sinners and he takes the wrath of God on himself. But the arrows in the chart, you see, point to kind of a progressive growth in a disciple's life until we continue on taking those steps of growth and are transformed and gathered around the throne room. The king of heaven, the crown. Here's what that means. As long as you've lived the faith, we've never fully arrived as a disciple. We're never done growing. We're never done changing. We're never done um, being molded into his image. And that means he's a good father. It'd be one thing if he just said, I got him. He's good. She's good. They're saved. They've got their ticket to heaven. They're all good. No, no, no. It's so much more. He wants to transform you in the here and now and others around you to grow forever to look like him. And the disciple making mission doesn't end until Jesus returns, one step at a time, day by day. And you hear this thing, you might think, yeah, you know, like, okay, I, this is, I get it. You know, you've got a, a, somebody here, you, you know, a consultant, or we're doing this big thing today. And you might think, well, this is, this is a big thing, and like, or it's too big. It sounds impossible. Or this is not for me. You might even be thinking some of those thoughts today. But if we look at it like this idea of one step at a time, one step at a time. That's actually really hopeful. Because it doesn't mean you have to become totally transformed overnight. No, God is with you in this ongoing life of faith and journey. But as you think about that line, where are you at on that line? And do you think of life as, as one of, of progress and growth in the Christian faith? And can you imagine that? Like what your tomorrow is going to look like? Or what you're going to look like tomorrow? 
or what you're going to look like in eternity. Do you know you've ever had moments of, of, of that flashes of light with somebody you love? It could be a spouse, it could be a family member or a brother, sister, a friend, where like they just amaze you with how they responded in like this loving way or just so sacrificial, or just a gentle, forgiving response, and you had that moment of like, oh, there you are. I see a little flash of what you will be in eternity right now. You ever had that with somebody? It's a beautiful thing. It doesn't happen a, doesn't happen a lot. It doesn't happen, ask my wife, she knows. Um, but you sometimes, get a, you sometimes get a flash of, ah, there you are. I can see what Christ is making you. Amen. I can see what you're going to become one day. One step at a time. And we know, as, as Craig said, it's one step forward, two back sometimes. One step forward, two back. But what does that mean for you and those around you in your life? Who are the people in your life maybe he wants you to pray for daily? What are the remaining sins he wants you to continue to battle? Maybe he's prompting you to join a DNA group or, or, or take advantage of that time at the gathering place a little more. Maybe for you today it means trusting Christ for the first time. Maybe you're on the left side of that chart and you're kind of like wrestling with who is Jesus. Maybe it means figuring that out for the first time. And as I said at the welcome, we want to help you do that here. That's our, that's our whole reasons for existing, really, to see people come to know Christ and then grow and grow and grow. I want us to think about that one step at a time on this grand plan. Where are you? Because we got a good why, don't we? <laughs> it's the grand plan of history. The gospel is meant in that Titus passage to grow us as we wait for him to return. And guess what? Christ has already done the work. Amen. It's now for us to live it out. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this challenge today. The words from Craig, the message of your scripture, the truths we hear that we are called to make disciples. Would you help us do that more and more at Bethany Church? Would you help more and more of us see and feel encouraged and excited and even joyful about getting the opportunity to live this life together? And let us respond and worship with songs and praise and glory to the work that you've already done. It's in Christ's name. Amen.